Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the great classic of spirituality from India, the Bhagavad Gita. My guest is my good friend Debashish Banerjee, who is the chairman of the East-West Psychology Department at the California Institute of Integral Studies, where he is also the Haridas Chowdhury Professor of Indian Philosophies and Culture. He is the author of about a dozen books dealing with topics ranging from Sri Aurobindo to yoga to the art of his great-grandfather, Abhinindranath Tagore, as well as looking at post-humanism. Welcome, Devashish. Thank you, Jeffrey. A pleasure to be with you. It is a pleasure to be with you as well. And to talk about the Bhagavad Gita, it must be, for many, many readers, one of the most uplifting spiritual treatises ever written. Indeed, uh, Jeffrey, it's considered to be uh, perhaps the preeminent spiritual text of wisdom text of India today. There are other wisdom texts that have gone before it, but this is uh, has assumed a certain kind of uh, preeminence in our times, I think. And the, the very words Bhagavad Gita means the song of God. Yes, true. The song, this. The, yeah, the Song of God, Bhagavad Gita, you're right. So it was originally part of a lengthy epic poem. Yes, the Bhagavad Gita is part of the Mahabharata, which is one of the biggest epics in the world and a very important text in India, one of its itihasas or uh, histories. Of course, it's a legendary history, but... Uh, it occupies a place in that particular text just before the war begins. Mm -hmm. uh, Mahabharata is a, is a, is a, is a epic about a fratricide, a very intense civil war, uh, uh, involving all the known, uh, kingdoms of North India at that time. And, uh, it, it, the, the, the question of dharma is preeminent in it. The whole text is really about what is the truth? What is good and bad? What is the right thing to do uh, in a difficult situation, uh, which eventually escalates to a war? And so this question is discussed throughout the epic. It's the underlying philosophical foundation of, of, the, of the epic. And it comes to a head in this text called uh, the Bhagavad Gita. So you have the hero uh, being Arjuna, the warrior, uh, his charioteer is Krishna, who is an avatar of the deity Vishnu. Uh, yes, actually at that time, I wouldn't even say he's an avatar of the deity Vishnu. Today we see him as an avatar of the deity Vishnu. But at the time when the Mahabharata was being written, this is the first recorded example of an avatar period. And, you know, the way in which it is presented, perhaps by a sect that is rising at that time, called the Bhagavata sect, uh, is that God can take birth, and this is 
the way in which he has as this figure. So uh, it isn't even an avatar of Vishnu, but incarnate God, the first avatar. At that time, there are no other avatars. Mm. So he is the example of an avatar. And the avatar, is that a Sanskrit word? Yes. It means, literally means descent. In other words, God descending into a human body. Because many of our viewers are probably more familiar with the movie Avatar or avatars in video games. Correct. I mean, that's the way in which the word has become transformed or, or used. In, in today's language, it has entered the English dictionary as something like a, a kind of a uh, a, a, a formation of oneself, another body that one takes. Uh, you can take a, you can create a form of yourself uh, in the video or uh, in the computer, uh, and in the in the movie, it's really somebody who can project themselves out into reality. It's like a virtual reality uh, emblem or emanation. Well, I have to think that. The movie Avatar was to some degree inspired by the Mahabharata because if, if nothing else, you have these blue people. Yes, true, true, which is coming from Vishnu, uh, who is colored blue, and then Krishna again is colored blue, has a blue <laughs> color. Uh, Vishnu's color blue is very interesting because Vishnu is... Uh, it's Vishnu originally is a solar god. He's the sun god of, of the Vedas. And Vishnu represents the light of the sun spreading through the sky. So it's uh, the power of the sun uh, to completely transform the night. You, you have uh, black pitch, uh, black night uh, at a certain point, then you have dawn and suddenly it's gone. And you have this blue radiance. So that's uh, the power of uh, the sun god. And Vishnu is seen as the spreading of the solar power. Vishnu literally means the spreader, the one who extends. I studied a little bit of Indian philosophy and religion uh, as an undergraduate in college. And I understand that at some point in the development of uh, the Hindu religion, a, a trinity evolve Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, the, the creator, the preserver, and the destroyer, Vishnu being, I think, the preserver in, in this trinity. But probably when the Mahabharata was written and, and the cult of Krishna and Vishnu was rising into prominence, it wasn't viewed that way at all. You're quite right, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, so this trinity uh, arises well after the 5th century. And it's a way by which new texts are trying to create a, a coherent pantheon of, of gods. But each of these figures that you mentioned has an independence. And uh, they arise as different sects. Uh, all of them have some kind of link with the Veda. But as a matter of fact, they amalgamate other kinds of traditions that are uh, more grassroots traditions. And then at the time when the Mahabharata, when the Mahabharata has been written over a period of time, and maybe the first, um, you know, mention of the Mahabharata is about the fourth century BC. And then you have other mentions through time, but this Mahabharata of the 4th century BC uh, must have been changed. And we see what, what we call the Bhagavad Gita 
uh, is most likely a text that enters the story about the 2nd century BC. Between the 2nd century B and the 1st century BC. Uh, and so the form in which we know the Mahabharata and the Gita today um, has been crafted by new uh, poets uh, who belong prominently to uh, this rising sect called the Bhagavata text sect. So the Bhagavatas, who are devotional uh, you know, followers of Krishna, uh, a, a new kind of following, uh, Krishna is a human being. So it, he arises from a hero cult, uh, so, so a family of heroes. And that becomes associated with some of the ideas of the Upanishads, of God being able to take any form uh, and actually residing in all of us, uh, becoming whatever uh, exists in the universe. So that kind of an idea uh, turned into a theology and made to influence this epic and this uh, great song of God is what we find in the Bhagavad Gita. So I gather, based on what you're saying, that the, the Mahabharata has not a single author. Yes, the Mahabharata itself, if we find, we were talking about the Vedas some time back, as being revealed scripture that comes through rishis. The Mahabharata in its telling uh, already sees itself as a multiply retold text. It is told at first... Uh, during a certain event by a certain seer, and then somebody else retells it, remembering that, and then it's retold by somebody else. The first telling is taking place way back during the time of the war itself, uh, you know, by one of the kings and a person who's telling him what's, oh, that's the, the Gita. But even the Mahabharata is attributed to the sage Vyasa, and the sage Vyasa, again, the divine origin of it is spoken about when they're saying that sage Vyasa was receiving the inspiration for this epic and asked the god Ganesha to be his scribe. So it's from the beginning a text that has got multiple layers to it and a combination of human and divine origins. Would you compare it in any way to the works of Homer? You could, in the sense that it is a epic, in the sense that it is about a war, uh, but I think it's different also because of this kind of multiple and contested authorship uh, within the text itself. Uh, and over time, it is retold in so many ways in, in India. Even today, there are versions of the Mahabharata that are being enacted created that are alternatives to the original. But the text we call the Mahabharata may have come to some kind of canonical fixed form about the 4th or 5th century CE. I know that there are some individuals, I think I've interviewed at least one of them, Michael Cremo, who is a member of the Hare Krishna sect, who take it literally. They, they think that the events described in the Mahabharata actually occurred as described. Uh, I would say, I mean, I think the text itself problematizes that idea mm -hmm. because it's a retelling. So every retelling uh, changes truth and makes it something more. I mean, what is truth? Truth is not necessarily fact. 
truth is significant interpretation. Mm. I see it as that. And so the, the text itself is trying to tell us that this story has been used and can be used to tell the truth about these events and about these ideas in your time and for your milieu. So I think that, that that's how it should be seen mm -hmm. rather than something that is a, a, a kind of a realistic narrative of history. Well, let's begin with the Bhagavad Gita uh, and share the narrative with our viewers. As I recall, the uh, armies are lined up on the battlefields of uh, Kurukshetra. Kurukshetra. And so you have opposing armies lined up, they're ready for war, and Arjuna being the hero of uh, one of these factions is reluctant to go into war against his own cousins. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what's going on, uh, Jeffrey. And this is, this is a lead. It's a, it's led up to this point in the epic because there are two sides, cousins, that have over time become completely sworn enemies, uh, particularly because one side is extremely uh, interested in possessing the lands that belong to both of them. Uh, so we find that uh, there is this arrayed uh, great genocide or fratricide about to take place. And uh, Arjuna, uh, who is the hero on one side, asks his charioteer, who's Krishna, to take him to the middle of the battlefield. And he says, let me observe, let me see the arrayed, arrayed warriors, the battle. Uh, the, the, the people <laughs> turned up for the battle. And at that point, he loses his nerve. And he said, and it's not really a loss of nerve because, because of war. It's because of the moral ramifications of the war. And he says, am I really being asked to take arms against my beloved, you know, elders, my teachers? Uh, and and if if I slay them in battle, what kind of sin will I incur? And if they slay me, then you know, I mean, that's th okay. Even I, I mean, I, I would rather be slain by them than go to war against them and kill them. Uh, so this is the dilemma, the moral dilemma of Arjuna, and he feels it to his charioteer, who is Krishna, his friend. Uh, and at the same time, his teacher and an avatar. So you've got these layers of relationship. And Krishna uh, talks to him in a conversation which forms this particular text. And it's a philosophical conversation. Mm -hmm. It's a conversation that is drawing on all the spiritual traditions of the time. Uh, because historically, the Upanishads have come and gone, uh, are not gone, the Upanishads are still being written. And two really important Upanishads, the Katha Upanishad and the Isha Upanishad, uh, are prominently featured in the Gita uh, without being named. Uh, specific uh, verses from the Katha Upanishad reappear in the Gita. Um, Two other very important schools, Sankhya and Yoga, have become prominent in popular practice, so they are being fielded as well. Um, 
Buddhism has entered, I believe. It isn't directly mentioned, except for a very, uh, you know, slight possible mention of the word nirvana, uh, but, but tweaked and modified to uh, be something more positive. It's called Brahma Nirvana, uh, extinction in Brahman. Uh, so these these traditions are all being brought together, synthesized in this teaching, and at the center of it, this new sect called the Bhagavata sect, which is about devotion to the Supreme as a person. It's in that sense, it's theistic as a person, uh, but a person that is. Uh, not simplistically a person. You know, that's where it's quite complex. Uh, God can take an impersonal form as well as a personal form, and the, neither of the two are greater than the other. This is the kind of teaching that the Gita gives us. But it can also take a human form, and that's Krishna. So all these philosophical traditions are being synthesized in the Bhagavad Gita. And I guess it's worthwhile to point out for our viewers that Krishna urges Arjuna to go into battle. He says, this is your duty. He does. He does. So right from the beginning, I mean, the early chapters have two kinds of messages. And the Gita has been interpreted and reinterpreted over the centuries by different schools uh, who look at it differently. So the first thing that Krishna says to Arjuna when he says, uh, I can't get into this battle, how can I kill these people or get killed by them? He says, who are you going to kill and who's going to kill you? This battle has already occurred and you haven't even been born. So he's pointing to a paradox of time uh, in which, you know, this is again the Upanishads that uh, reality is a projection of some invisible truth that is uh, ultimately infinite. And so its infinity remains intact in its projection or even in spite of its projection. So time comes and goes. In a sense, it has been already uh, foreseen, the forces that come into play, but that which uh, is behind all that, is not really involved in it. So th this is one of the teachings that it is giving us. But you can ask the question, and Arjuna does in a number of ways, that if that's the case, why are you asking me to go to battle? I could as well just observe this and see it as an inevitable play. Uh, but that's where he's also, the, the second message is he's telling him to go to war. And why does he tell him that? At first, as you said, he's saying it's, it's your duty. It's your duty as a Kshatriya, in other words, a man of war. Uh, and this is a reference to the caste system. But as the Gita unfolds, the idea of caste is made more uh, complex. And it is connected to, with what is called Swabhava. In other words, the notion that caste, or what we call caste, or a, a sort of duty uh, or a expression in, in the world uh, is really born out of some kind of inner truth, swabhava, of the soul. So each one of us, it isn't that we are born, it's not hereditary uh, and hierarchical, 
but each one of us has a soul quality, as it were, that makes us adapted to certain works in the world. And if that, that is our real duty, to, to follow that particular expressive strain that, uh, you know, makes us who we are. Am I correct that when I say the word duty in English, we're really talking about dharma? That's right. The word dharma is much more complex than duty. So, duty would be a, what in Sanskrit would be called personal dharma or swadharma. But this entire text is about dharma. So, dharma is the larger moral framework. What is the right thing to do in life? Uh, it's a cosmological framework. What is the truth of our time? Uh, what holds things together? Dharma literally means that which holds together. So there is a dharma of our age, of time. There is a dharma of our kingdom. There is a dharma of a certain society. There is a dharma of a certain individual. All that is coming into play here. Well, I have to say, as a pacifist myself, yeah. uh, I'm troubled by the idea that this great spiritual classic is fundamentally saying it's it's okay to go to war and, and to kill people. You're quite right about that, Jeffrey. A, a pacifist will be troubled. Um, and also, I, I might say, in today's world, this kind of text is being used by right-wing forces uh, in India and even in America who and other places who see this as a justification for orthodox, uh, you know, aggression against the other yeah. in the name of God, right? Uh, but uh, I, you know, I also point to you uh, about really difficult situations that, that we are faced with sometimes. Yeah. We are faced with uh, situations where there may be great harm done to the world unless we take a stand. Um, that's one, one way of looking at it. Another way of talking about it is that we have to place it in its historical context. Uh, maybe today we are gradually aspiring for a world when war is not necessary. And I, I would say war still has a meaning because law courts are spaces of war, uh, places of debate are spaces of war. Uh, we have violence inside us. And that violence can actually be resolved in hopefully subtler ways than killing each other. Uh, but at a certain point, even today, it sometimes becomes impossible. Uh, human nature is such uh, that the question arises as to, is it better for me to let uh, extreme injustice and power run rampant than to take up arms? We've had these examples in our recent past in history. As a matter of fact, as I recall in an earlier conversation you and I had yeah. today, yeah. you mentioned that uh, Mahatma Gandhi, the great pioneer of nonviolence, urged Churchill yeah. in the onset of the Second World War just to, to let the Germans uh, come and invade England. Exactly. In the name of pacifism, he said that, oh, why are you, of course, you know, I mean, India was also uh, had some problem. It was, was colonized by Britain. Yeah. But he wrote an open letter to Churchill saying, let the Germans in and by the power of your love, the power of your nonviolence, 
uh, convert them into people who will let you go. So, Which is, in effect, what happened to the British in India. Yes. And this is the thing that, you know, I mean, uh, a lot of the later part of the Indian uh, freedom struggle was fought on the grounds of an appeal to the British uh, conscience. I mean, hunger fasts and things like that. And gradually uh, there was, but it, if you re really look at the fact, it wasn't due to that that the British left. The British left part largely because after the Second World War, it became impossible for them to maintain their colonies. So there were pragmatic reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, even if we say that they, it had an effect on their conscience, not all peoples have that kind of conscience. Some people may be so invested in their ideological views that they don't really care if they destroy you. And we've seen that in our times. And that's when this question becomes extremely all our moral principles, because that's a question of dharma. Is dharma, this is the question that Mahabharata and the Gita are fielding. Is dharma something we can define by moral principle? Or does it go beyond that? And if it goes beyond that, where are we to find the answers, the solutions? I have to imagine that Gandhi probably commented specifically about the Bhagavad Gita. He does, Jeffrey. And there he says, Krishna could not be asking Arjuna to go to war because it is patently evil. And what he's talking about is the inner war. So he turns it entirely into a symbol. But uh, we could say that, you know, it's not necessarily only, it is a symbol. There's no doubt there's an inner war going on and we can read it like that. But we are also faced with different degrees of external, uh, you know, difficulty in taking decisions uh, of good and evil in the, in the, in the, in, in the outer world. That this, I mean, that's behind this. As I recall in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna basically says to Arjuna, you didn't create a life, you can't destroy a life. That's yeah. only God can, can do that. So it doesn't matter uh, what you do when you go to war. You're not really creating or destroying life. Yeah, that, that's the first thing he says. But he's also saying, I think the great lesson that he's giving about action uh, is that what is good and evil is beyond the scope of our present understanding. Because what truly is good and evil is, uh, uh, for us now, is a kind of a, a, a integral view of uh, all the actions of all the humans that are taking place right now. So Krishna is saying that we cannot really understand what dharma is or what is the real thing good or, or good the good to be done by any individual by principles and that's because what is good for all of us and he uses the word loka sangraha loka sangraha literally means holding together the world what holds the world together right now is only decided by looking at the actions of everybody what i may do uh, may not i may think it's the best thing to do but it may not be the best thing to do uh, so the vision that integral vision is beyond our individual scope but this is where the Gita becomes a yoga text. 
it is saying that this this is this is the vision of the Vishwarupa of Krishna. Said so that this integral view is a consciousness, and if we aim our activity towards that consciousness, it gradually guides us. It becomes living to us. It forms a relationship with us, and it makes us into intuitive beings that ultimately become capable of seeing and doing what it wants us to do. So this is in a sense, a, a, that's why it's a yoga text. It's taking us beyond our present capacity to become cosmic beings. And that's the real inspiration, I think. That, that's the inspiration of the Gita uh, to, to this day because I, I think today we are in a condition very similar to the condition of the Mahabharata. Even if we, like you, Jeffrey, I, I'm also a pacifist in that sense. I, I certainly don't want war. But whatever the condition is, the hostility and conflicts through which we go, the aggressions and the misunderstandings, uh, to hold the world together under those conditions, we need a vision which is really integral, complete. And for that, we need to hold that possibility in our in our minds and and evolve towards that and that's what the gita is trying to it's yoga uh, the, it's yoga of works for example is about surrendering one's works to a vision like that when he says surrender your works to me uh, what krishna means by that is not don't uh, not surrender your works to another individual who claims that he's god He's showing him what the ideal is in that uh, in, the, the, in that holding together uh, that vision that he gives him, where past, present, and future are one, where all the beings that have ever existed are one in the body of this being. So it's really a consciousness. It's a kind of uh, sort of spiritual consciousness that is uh, that is beyond us as we are right now. But that we can aim our, uh, you know, aspiration towards and build a relationship with. You know, the, the Isha Upanishad has a line. It says, um, the one unthinking is swifter than thought. It is very close to us and very far away. So this is what Krishna is saying. That the, the, the avatar is really inside us. The avatar is very close to us. It's the essence of our being. But at the same time, it's very distant from us. It's a certain kind of vision that we haven't yet reached. So to build that relationship is, I believe, the real message of the Gita. I'm under the impression that what inspires readers of the Bhagavad Gita is this scene where Krishna reveals his true nature. Exactly. That's the, uh, verses 10 and 11, particularly verse 11 where he uh, bestows on Arjuna the divine sight, as it were. And it's a very paradoxical image. It's, it's this tremendously, one may say, psychedelic image uh, that is portrayed. But it's at the same time uh, finite and infinite. It's the meeting point of the personal and the impersonal. The, all paradoxes uh, are one in that uh, vision. And that's exactly where I believe we are being called. This is the post-humanism of the Gita. Mm -hmm. It's calling us to go beyond the human 
uh, as a form of yoga because at the level of the human we are we we can only have principles and principles are somehow not enough at a time which is really difficult and we are going through such a time right now well i know robert oppenheimer one of the developers of uh, the first atomic bomb uh, in fact when he witnessed the first atomic bomb explosion he quoted from the bhagavad gita here in new mexico yes where we are right now brighter than 10000 suns yes yes exactly and that's from that 11th chapter yeah where where he sees this image of uh, uh, of 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 the origin of the source uh and it's really a, in a way the gita is connecting itself with the uh, with the veda uh with the image of purusha in the veda uh because this image of a paradoxical being that contains all the entire cosmos and is beyond the cosmos is the sun actually the solar origin uh is what's being talked about it's it seems to be destructive at that point just like openheimer saw the possibility of the atom bomb because krishna is saying i am time arisen to slay the peoples and that that seems to be that uh, you know apocalyptic vision that arjuna is being given but along with it is also this sense that though it is too much for us it is it's a burnout uh, arjuna can't take it he says revert back to your original form but at the same time it's giving us the image of something the monstrous is leading us towards togetherness to the one to towards the one oneness of all creation I think it's interesting that the philosophy of nonviolence in India actually doesn't go uh, back to the Bhagavad Gita it goes back to the founder of the Jain religion or Buddhism Buddha and Mahavira Mahavira the founder of the you're very right Gandhi got his nonviolence from the Jains uh Gandhi's satyagraha vows are the vows of the Jains Gandhi's mother was a Jain and so he is in that sense much more of a giant than a somebody who is coming from the traditions of the bhagavad gita and these uh, people take the philosophy of nonviolence i think many uh, westerners who observe what they do uh, probably find it extreme they you know, walk down the street with a little brush so that they wouldn't accidentally step on an insect Right, right, and wear masks. You know, we are all doing that. These yeah, days. we're wearing masks. <laughs> we are, yeah. are quasi giants today, but you know, for another reason. But yes, you're right. They 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 take it to an extreme, an eccentric extreme, I'd say. Uh, but that's uh, yeah, how they see reality uh, and nonviolence. So I wonder how people within the Jain tradition. how do they absorb this great classic the bhagavad gita uh i i would say that they will not uh, really look at that uh, war and things like that as as uh, uh, legitimate uh, but you know there have been great jain kings uh, you know who went to war themselves but nevertheless i think uh, you know for jainism and that's part of the pluralism of india we have various views that coexist and uh jainism uh has uh, coexisted through the centuries with the uh, 
teachings of of a more aggressive nature. But also, uh, what I'd like to say about this, uh, uh, Jeffrey, is. Uh, you know, the Gita arises at a very interesting time because if we see the Veda, uh, by the time of the Buddha, for example, or even before that, by the time of the Upanishads, the Gita has become, uh, has spawned an oppressive society. It's become a symbolic society. And the Brahmanas and the, uh, and the Kshatriyas, they have control over society. The majority of people are oppressed. And the Upanishads, as well as uh, Buddhism, uh, the Buddha, Gautama Buddha, and Jainism, they are, uh, you know, in reaction against this kind of society. And the solution they are all proposing is either to go out of this society to the peripheries or to... Uh, you know, kind of give up, renounce this society. So I think within that kind of situation, the Bhagavad Gita is telling us that, no, there's another kind of spirituality, a spirituality in which you have to take your stand in the world, that there is a right and wrong to actual social life. And even if it comes to war, you have to know what you need to do in a spiritual way. So I think it's a life-affirming text from that point of view. Would you say that Arjuna is changed after Krishna reveals himself uh, as the avatar of Vishnu? Something happens within Arjuna? I, I would say so, definitely, Jeffrey. I think uh, if we look at the entire uh, text and its structure, uh, maybe the first six uh, chapters of the Bhagavad Gita introduce its teachings uh, in terms of the yogas, what is to be done, uh, both in terms of uh, it, it poses this in terms of Sankhya and Yoga, two schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Sankhya of uh, the Bhagavad Gita is not the same as what we call Sankhya. It's modifying it. It's making it more Upanishadic. But at the same time, it's more like a meditative text. It's saying you can find a point of uh, transcendence, a point of liberation from life. And the yoga is the karma yoga of the, of the Gita. And it's saying you can act in the world in a spiritual way by surrender, surrendering the fruits of your action to the divine. But this is further developed philosophically from the 7th to the 12th chapters. So Arjuna's questions are answered both at, at a practical and a philosophical level. And in the 12th chapter, with that particular experience, so it's the, it's the experiential uh, revelation of the teaching, uh, I think Arjuna is finally, uh, you know, sort of, uh, he, he, he understands everything that is being told to him. And he does undergo transformation. So after that, uh, there's six more chapters. But those chapters are a re, uh, one may say, a, a kind of a tying together of the threads and a clarification of the points that have been raised. Uh, but Arjuna is in a position at that point to say, uh, I accept what you say, so, because he's been transformed by that point. 
Well, when you say being detached from the fruits of your action, that seems to be uh, very much at the heart of, of the spiritual philosophy that you, you do your dharma, your duty, you do the best that you can, and don't worry about the results. Yes, exactly. And for the same reason that I was saying, because we really don't know what is the ultimate good, because our acts, sometimes our defeat can lead to a greater good for, for a larger number of people. Uh, it isn't that just my principle is going to mean the best for the world, but I have to go by the greatest wisdom that I have. And so, as you said, one has to do the best one can, but in a surrendered way to this same vision, this vision of wholeness that can illuminate us, that can transform us, that can, you know, create intuition in us. So, earlier we were talking about the mantra, and we used, the, I used this term, seer will, or also the tantric uh, idea of the word that sees, Pashyanti Vak. So, this intuition that grows gives us knowledge as well. It's a, it's a perception and an act and a will. So, I should do this, but why should I do this? So, so I can see with a kind of greater wisdom what the result of my action will be. Moving towards states of consciousness like that uh, is the aim of the Bhagavad Gita. So, uh, there is an interesting verse in the Bhagavad Gita uh, that I think part of that verse encapsulates uh, what its central message is. It's, it's the term Brahma Karma Samadhi. This word Samadhi, we used this word earlier as trance, but Brahma Karma Samadhi means the yoga or the union of works and Brahman, Brahman or Supreme Reality, the one reality there is, that reality is acting through me in a state of union. So that becomes uh, the, the entire goal uh, of, of the Gita. So in effect, what you're saying is we, we can view the Bhagavad Gita and the Mahabharata as historical documents. They came from an era in which warfare was quite common in India. They came from an era in which the caste system was well-established and was oppressing people. But there are certain spiritual truths that emerge that sort of transcend the historical uh, locality of, of the work. Absolutely, uh, Jeff. And I think that's how we have to see it today. Everybody needs to see what works in it for them. I think it's a great spiritual text. One doesn't need to be hung up on the fact that it's about a specific war and whether it is talking about violence or nonviolence in that sense of killing people. I think what's much more important is the essence of violence that, that's in, in all of us and all around us. Uh, the essence of knowing what to do in a world of violence and finding a kind of a spiritual status that is beyond our present capacity. I think these are the real uh, nuggets that keep the Bhagavad Gita uh, important for us today. Well, Debashish Banerjee, once again, a brilliant and delightful conversation, uh, nourishing and enriching on many levels. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Jeffrey. It was a pleasure. And for those of you watching or listening, 
Thank you for being with us. Thank you.